future human visionaries. What tomorrow knows today. Produced in association with the V and A. Welcome to Visionaries, a podcast dedicated to futurological thinkers. We seek out people who are reimagining innovation in their field and ask them to apply their intelligence to emerging trends. Owen Holland is Professor of Cognitive Robotics at the University of Sussex, where he works to simulate human intelligence in robots. His research similarly focuses on analysing the potential for engineering machine consciousness. He explains the challenges of attempting such simulations and how they might be overcome. The best starting point for any talk about consciousness is the entry that Stuart Sutherland wrote for the International Dictionary of Psychology in 1989. Consciousness is a fascinating but elusive phenomenon. It's impossible to specify what it is, what it does, or why it evolved. Nothing worth reading has ever been written on it. So, good starting point. And perhaps it's like uh, some economists' view of Brazil. Brazil is the country of the future and always will be. Okay, let's get into basics. We all live a normal life, and some things are obvious to all of us. We perceive the world as it is. I'm not in serious doubt about anything I see here. We remember what we perceive, um, and we consciously decide on our actions, action consciously decided on, and then we consciously initiate and control them, and so on. We expect people to do this, we teach our children to do this, and the law assumes we'll do this. Well, okay, let's think again. We get the wrong idea about uh, what we can do. That's known as inattentional blindness. And there's also change blindness. You may miss a gross change in your visual field if there's a change in another bit of it. So for example, a splash of mud on the windscreen while you're driving along and you might not see the child in front of the car. It's not your fault. It's just the way your brain works. But we're convinced, absolutely convinced, that what we see is what is there and all that's there. Not true. Um, you don't know your own actions. Psychologists can make you claim um, that you initiated an action uh, that in fact you didn't. I won't go into the details of this. When sensations become conscious, okay, you all heard that, but in fact you only became consciously aware of it about half a second after it had happened. But it seemed to be happening in real time. Um, if I do a voluntary action like this, um, or if you do one, I say raise your hand when you feel like it, your brain will begin that action about half a second before you yourself are aware of initiating it. In other words, the unconscious is doing these things and consciousness is lagging behind and making sense of it. And the best thing is your memories of your experiences. You'll have all heard about false memory syndrome. That can be done in the lab. It turns out that when you recall a memory from the past, it's kind of fluid and it's re-entered. Um, it's called reconsolidation, but it's contaminated by whatever was going on around you during that period. So you're, you can't trust your memories and you can't trust anybody else's. These are the facts of conscious life. So um, taking our conscious experiences at face value leads to a false perception of ourselves, others and the world. Now, in the future, knowledge of this will become deeper and more evenly distributed. At the moment, it's confined mostly within psychology. And it'll eventually lead, I believe, to a reconception of what we are. It's going to force changes in the law. We have to abandon eyewitness testimony, for example. Um, ethics, education, advertising, transport, parenting, medicine, and much else. It's a radical revision of what we think we are, and this affects everything.
in particular, when we take into account discoveries about how behavior and behavioral choices can be affected by early experience, brain damage, genetic abnormalities, and so on, we can see the continuation of the process of what Dan Dennett, the philosopher, calls creeping exculpation. It's just like Madame de Stael's, to understand everything is to forgive everything. Once we understand the processes involved, there's very little that we can blame people for. And this is going to be tremendously difficult for society to absorb. That's the psychology of consciousness, the science of consciousness. Although no one can yet define consciousness to everybody's satisfaction, uh, the hunt for a scientific account of how the brain produces it is now a major enterprise within what's quite a new science, neuroscience. And the accuracy and resolution of the equipment gets better every year. The number of investigators increases inexorably. Now we can now see which parts of the brain are active during the production of consciousness, or usually known as the neural correlates of consciousness, and we're beginning to get an idea of what some of these parts are doing in terms of cognition, in terms of thinking processes. But we still lack a theory of how the material brain, the physical brain, produces the apparently immaterial phenomena of subjective consciousness, the mind. Our current idea of the nature of consciousness may be similar to old ideas of the nature of life, which was a mystery. It was held to be a distinct and possibly immaterial phenomenon. But once the mechanisms of metabolism and reproduction were understood, it became both impossible and unnecessary to ask the old questions about life. And many people suspect that this is going to happen to consciousness. And so the lack of a theory should not hold back the work. Um, but on the other hand, some people are still very skeptical about whether the brain scanning imaging is ever going to tell us about how consciousness works. I actually think it will tell us. Um, and another quotation, this is from Francis Crick, who did a lot to resolve the uh, difficulties about life. Um, he discovered, of course, the uh, structure of the DNA molecule. And he wrote in 1990, it's true that by blundering around, we stumbled on gold. But the fact remains that we were looking for gold. And I think this is what is going to tease it out from the brain scanning. They know what they're looking for. They might trip across it by accident, um, but they'll know it when they see it. Anyway, last thing, the engineering of machine consciousness, the deep future. Now, once we understand how the neurons in the brain produce consciousness, and if it turns out that no spooky physical processes are involved, which I think it will, then it will be possible in principle to produce machine consciousness by using assemblies of adequately detailed artificial neurons. And even if we can't manufacture adequate physical neurons, we could in principle simulate them to any required degree of accuracy. So could appropriate assemblies of simulated neurons produce real consciousness? Well, of course, we don't know yet, but in the future, we'll find out. All the current projects, and there are several of them, to build whole brains, whether they're mouse brains or human brains, they take this approach for very good practical reasons. Um, now, if consciousness can be achieved by what is, in fact, running software, then you get some interesting questions. Could it be run on a distributed system so the consciousness had no location? Um, could it be run in the cloud somewhere with no known location and varying locations? Would two running copies of the same software um, constitute two consciousnesses or just one? Could a machine consciousness be better in some sense than our own? Since our own consciousness is buggy, could we make a bug-free machine consciousness? These are all going to become real questions. 
Could consciousness be migrated from one body to another? Uh, if a single consciousness could exist within a distributed computer system, could it exist within multiple bodies? Think of an ant colony connected by wireless. So these are all going to become practical questions as soon as the neuroscientists crack consciousness for us. Is the kind of body important? Um, well, we know from many sources that uh, the nature of the body actually conditions the nature of intelligence. This is particularly apparent in language. The, the ideas of uh, the body and the senses embedded in space actually condition the kind of intelligence we appear to have. We are the most intelligent species we know of at the moment, and we're also, in a sense, the only or most conscious species. The two may be linked. It may well be that the kind of body we've got influences the kind of consciousness we have. This is Future Human Visionaries. Keep listening to find out what tomorrow knows today. Sandra Kemp of the V&A asked whether the development of such technology should be regulated more tightly. This only really crops up in the area of uh, machine consciousness, and that's um, it's kind of odd because we can't do it yet. But we already have discussions about the ethics of attempting to create conscious machines, and one of the best known um, philosophers of consciousness, Thomas Metzinger, has called for people not to even try, just in case they create something that will suffer. Mm. Um, but it's one of those things, um, I'm not saying it's going to be comparable with the atom bomb, um, but it only, re only really becomes a moral problem once we've done it. And once we've done it, the cat is out of the bag. Um, and uh, we had, uh, we've had mentions of uh, stem cells, for example, which uh, research was banned in the USA, and so people just did it somewhere else. Uh, if we don't have a world government, you can be absolutely sure that even if it's banned in 177 of the 178 countries on the planet, um, research will happen in the 178. Um, I don't think building these things for scientific purposes, if we ever succeed, is a bad thing. It could be a very good thing. Um, but I don't really look forward to a world where there are really conscious robots uh, making claims for themselves about their rights. Um, obviously, the, um, and if the European Union still exists, then I'm sure it would become a, a live issue. But I think we're safe really having to discuss this thing for um, a couple of decades. So it's certainly something that we think about. Um, I can't see how it could be regulated other than by banning the attempts, but I'm sure it will, be, it will be done. And what happens after that, I think, is going to be as much a function of the nature of governments 20 or 30 years from now. What are the ethics of funding such expensive scientific projects? And will important innovations that affect all of humanity consistently fall into private hands? Everything all of us do is really expensive. How much does space cost? Mm. Must be a fortune. Mm. Nanotechnology? Not cost anything at all, apart from the labs the and the training of the people. Yeah. But it is driven by the funding, and much of the funding of certain governments is driven by perceived military prospects of mm. developing the technology. Mm. And, and the other 5% I don't think is worth talking about. There's a lot of, uh, well, the medical thing, um, well, that's big business anyway. Um, so I think the possible medical benefits are... Um, driving a lot of this. For example, I've been speaking for myself today, but I'm affiliated to the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science uh, at the University of Sussex, 
which is a mixture of people from medical school, psychology department, and computer science department. But the ultimate aim of the center is to produce research that is useful in a clinical context. This recording took place at an event convened by the V&A, with support from Z33, the Wellcome Collection, and the Arts and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by Future Human in Dalston, London. For more episodes of the Future Human podcast, visit iTunes or soundcloud.com.